Simple Beep, Episode 38, Voice Interfaces. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And that was Fred that you heard at the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll get back to Fred and all of his friends later, because that will be the main topic of our show today. But first, a little follow-up. Yes, our previous episode was about the control strip, and friend of the show, Phil Dokus, reminded us that a beloved Macintosh software developer, Ambrosia Software, had an alternative to a lot of the control strip modules that we talked about called Color Switch Pro. This was more of a menu bar extra that would sit in your classic macOS menu bar and have a drop-down menu with a lot of the same features covered by different control strip modules. Actually, I think maybe all of the main things that Ed and I talked about using the control strip for were covered by this one application. As the name suggests, uh, color switch, it was definitely for your screen settings like resolution and color depth, but it also controlled Apple CD audio player, the system volume, and even your PPP network connection, all in one uh, contained unit. Yeah, we'll link to a screenshot of this. And when I look at this, I can't help but think that the reason that this application came into existence was that someone at Ambrosia used the control strip but didn't want it to take up a whole lot of space. And so they would leave the control strip as minimized as possible to show just one module. And the one that they used the most was changing the color depth or the display resolution. So they always left it on that one. And then they got sick of scrolling back and forth. And they said, I could make an app where it is just this exact icon, but then everything comes out of it when I click on it. Yeah. And I wonder if it came out of like, Ambrosia made a lot of great games that worked at different color depths and resolutions as the Mac became more capable. So I wonder if they were frequently switching so much for like internal testing that this became a little bit of a necessity. Right, because you want to make sure that if you're developing even a new game, that it degrades gracefully on older hardware. But yeah, that that's it for follow-up. Uh, just as a reminder, we are going to be going to the Release Notes conference in Indianapolis at the end of September. Had they announced speakers the last time that we mentioned that? I don't think they had. Yeah, I think since our last episode, they've announced the slate of speakers, and there are some really excellent people from the Mac community. You know, we say it at the top of the show, and this is definitely going to be a gathering of the Mac community, and we're very excited for it. And uh, you can find out more about that conference at releasenotes.tv. Now onto our main topic for today, which are voice interfaces of various sorts. And of course, everyone is familiar today with Siri on the Mac and maybe some competitors on other services and think of it as a pretty modern technology. But it turns out that the Macintosh and Apple's legacy with voice interfaces, speech production, text-to-speech, voice recognition go pretty far back. It goes all the way back to the introduction of the Macintosh. Uh, we'll link to a, a piece from Folklore.org about the, the background behind this story, or if you saw the uh, Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie. This this played a, a big part of the first act of that movie. And this was one of the things where it, it precisely dates our experience with the Mac and the fact that we weren't around at the launch of the original Mac. And when I heard that, oh, if you paid attention during the Jobs movie, I'm like, wait, wasn't that like all fictionalized? And that didn't actually happen. Like that was to to drum up drama. And then no, you start going back researching and find out that yes, actually, this whole thing of the Macintosh talking at its introduction was a real live event that happened. And one of the interesting things about it that we'll get into in a minute is that that introduction apparently was lost to the ages for a while. Uh, until somebody dug up, I don't know, VHS tape of of a recording of it, which is now, of course, available in perpetuity on YouTube. Well, let's go back to that story of how this grand introduction actually came to be. And of course, this was a Steve Jobs vision. And according to the story on Folklore.org, which was written by Andy Hertzfeld, the whole team was gearing up for the product launch and product demo. And the goal was to have as 
grandiose of a demo as possible, talking about different kinds of slideshows and animations that they could do, playing epic music in the background. Uh, and apparently, first, what they wanted to do was actually to have the Mac play the music, and it sounded terrible. <laughs> Just because of the low-quality synthesizers that they could have at the time. And, of course, people were used to listening to high-quality music, even in the 80s. You know, you could have a good stereo system with really high-fidelity sound. So you didn't want to say, here's our brand-new computer, and it makes some awful bleeps and bloops music. Because that wouldn't be impressive. So Steve said, no, stick with Chariots of Fire, <laughs> but um, just play it off of a CD on on the sound system. It'll sound great. And then the idea of, okay, we still want to do something audio with the Mac, because that was one of the selling points of the Mac, was that it had a speaker built in, it had sound capabilities. And, you know, there, there were all kinds of things that came out of that, like the Sosumi sound. <laughs> yes. Uh, but another thing that came out of it was that they got the idea that perhaps the Mac could talk at the introduction. And... The reason that they got this idea was they uh, got in touch with an Apple II developer who was named Mark Barton, and he had created this piece of software that was called SAM, and that stood for Software Automatic Mouth. And so it was a speech generator that did text-to-speech. And that was definitely advanced for the time, and they said that they were able to improve it because the Mac had better hardware that was able to do better synthesis of the sounds and of course, it's it's totally stereotypical robot voice as we would conceive of it today. But this was a really impressive achievement. And as we were getting ready for the show, Brian asked me, "Ed, you you know linguistics, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. is there is there is is there something about the way that these different text to speech or voice synthesis software works that is interesting here?" And one of the things that I find particularly interesting is that yeah, they had. Uh, they had a speech generator, which uses what are called the formants of the sounds. And so if you think of it, when when we talk, the way that our mouth and vocal apparatus works, it, it's like a musical instrument. Obviously, you can sing with the same thing. And unlike, say, a really simple musical instrument that you you like blow through a little uh, little whistle and it just makes exactly one tone, the way that all of the stuff moving around in your mouth, your tongue, your lips, your teeth, and everything, it actually creates multiple pitches at once, and they change all the time. And these are called the formants. So you usually have two, three, four formants going on at once that make the characteristic sounds that you hear. So basically, to generate speech, you have to layer sounds on top of each other, and you have to get the pitches precise, and you have to get the timing precise, because otherwise it doesn't sound like anything. And... I had some friends in grad school who th there was an optional seminar that you could take on speech synthesis. And this was in, you know, this was only a few years ago. We're talking like 2010. And when you start from nothing, when you start from building your own speech synthesizer, speech generator yourself, building up from the formants, it's extremely difficult even today, just because the science of getting it right is very hard. And people who are in this class, they said, I love it, but this is probably the hardest class I have ever taken in school ever. So that Apple was able to get in touch with this guy who just, you know, as as sounds like an independent developer was able to come up with this, uh, was pretty impressive and, and pretty lucky, to be honest. So Steve Jobs heard what Sam was capable of on the Apple II, and the quote from the story goes, I want the Macintosh to be the first computer to introduce itself. So they adapted the software to run on the Mac. And uh, there's a fun behind the scenes fact here that the original Macintosh was the 128K model. They were already working on a 512K model. And the, the requirements, the technical requirements of the speech synthesis were such that they needed this forthcoming model, which they fortunately had a prototype of. And the cases looked identical, so it didn't really matter. Nobody knew. Right. Uh, but so it's, it turns out that the Macintosh that introduced itself was actually a uh, forthcoming upgraded model and not the, the true original. Anyhow, they were able to get that prototype into the bag. 
<laughs> that that went on stage for the introduction. And at the appropriate moment, the Macintosh was pulled from the bag uh, and the whole sound and light show of uh, you know, the music is playing in the background and all these different screenshots from apps are playing and animations are happening. That goes on for a while. And then it gets to you know, the culmination of the demo, which is the actual introduction itself. Hello, I am Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. So the Macintosh then goes on for like a couple of short paragraphs more of introduction of itself and then handing it back to Steve Jobs. And at that point, you can tell that like the audience is getting into it. But at that point, the next two whole minutes of the video is just Steve Jobs with the absolute greatest grin on his face and standing ovation, hooting and hollering, two solid minutes of clapping. Like it was, it, they wanted the absolute best demo and they got it. That ended up being version one of Macintosh, the software libraries to make text to speech possible. Macintosh was actually part of a larger speech package known as Plain Talk. And uh, there's a quote from the Wikipedia page for Plain Talk talking about how by 1990, Apple had invested a lot of work and money in speech recognition technology, hiring a lot of researchers from the field. And the result was the larger Plain Talk package released with the Macintosh Quadra AV series in 1993 and later a standard system component in System 7.1.2. So with that release of Plain Talk, we had text-to-speech and also speech recognition. But the text-to-speech side of it, the Macintosh, would continue to see some improvements, specifically the last major release, Macintosh 3. Yeah, so throughout the evolution of Plain Talk and Macintosh, obviously we went from that original robot voice that was pretty well hard-coded to having an entire library of voices and improving quality and improving ability to, again, get language right. You know, from, from the linguistic standpoint, you can't just read letter by letter. Anyone who's learned how to read English knows that. Uh, you know, we tell, sometimes we tell kids in, in early elementary schools, they're learning to read. Oh, just sound it out. But that's <laughs> like, it's like the worst strategy. I mean, English spelling is terrible. There are words that are pronounced differently in different contexts. There's all kinds of ambiguity. Are they read receipts or read receipts? <laughs> Nobody even knows. Like, <laughs> you know, that that phrase existed and and then it kind of got unmoored from its context and all of a sudden nobody knows how to pronounce it. So for a computer to be able to do that, there has to be, you know, some linguistic model behind it at least looking you know, more than one word at a time. And things definitely did improve consistently. That didn't mean that you couldn't fool it. I mean, I remember that, you know, fun, fun game to try to play would be to like try to fool the computer, come up with weird phrases that it couldn't pronounce or type in gibberish and see what it would be able to handle. Um, I remember finding a really weird bug in what was probably, it could have been Macintosh 2 or Macintosh 3, uh, I remember it's like, okay, what's weird gibberish that we can make the computer say that would, that would be funny to hear. It's like, uh, here is the entire periodic table of the elements type in all the abbreviations and see what it does with them. <laughs> so at that time, the elements in the low one hundreds hadn't been named yet. They've since been named, but there was element number one fifteen. It must've been because it was like unun quatrium or something like that, 114 or 115. And its abbreviation was UUQ. And you're like, okay, what's the computer going to do with this? It's going to say OOK or, you know, just say UUQ or give up or what's it going to do? And so it got to that one and it reliably, no matter what you did, pronounced the letters UUQ as ER, <laughs> which makes no sense. There's no R anywhere near that. Like... <laughs> It just, but there was some weird bug there where just reliably it did that every time. And then a few years later, I tried it again and it was gone. It would say, you know, ook or something. <laughs> That's really funny. So yeah, Macintosh consistently improved throughout uh, System 7 and into the Mac OS era. And one of the things that you had mentioned before, Brian, was that, you know, it was some of the plain talk features were released with the AV lines of computers. So it was a case of, this was 
basically system software, but it was system software that was pushing the boundaries of the hardware all the way from that original demo, but continuing through its life. It was always pushing what the what the hardware could do. And in some respects, you know, driving which hardware you might want to purchase. If you had serious needs for it, you might need an AV Mac if you were going to be doing lots of uh, the speech recognition or text-to-speech, then you would get the best experience with it. But continuing on with Macintosh 3, one of the great things about Macintosh 3, also if you were of the appropriate age that I think we were when when this came out, was that it included fun voices. So there were the kind of generic male and female adult voices. And then there were also, they introduced what were supposed to be you know, an actual feature with kids' voices, although they were very noticeably just like pitch-shifted versions of the adult voices. They didn't really stand out as being kind of authentically childish. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> what you could uh, go into the speech control panel and hear samples of these different voices. And the one for one of the child voices is kind of overselling it with what it actually says to get you convince you, yes, I am a child, not just a high-pitched voice, because... My favorite food is pizza. And I believe that Macintosh 3 was also the time that the first really good non-novelty voices were introduced. And the one that you've probably heard a million times in pop culture, because it, it just crops up from time to time, is the voice that kicked off our show today, which is Fred. I sure like being inside this fancy computer. Just listen for it. You'll hear it like samples of it in music or on, you know, on TV commercials still to this day. And I suppose one of the reasons that that's possible is because Fred is still distributed in OS X today. And I believe is one of the the default options. There are three male voices and three female voices that are pre-installed default options in OS X. Uh, and two of the three in each gender are from the Macintosh 3 era. And you can kind of tell <laughs> as they compare to the more modern voices. Uh, but yes, there were all these other fun voices. I was thinking, oh man, how am I going to be able to uh, go back and relive these because th these were a lot of fun. Um, there's a great quote from Max for Dummies, which was uh, in, in a section where they're running down all of the different control panels, what you can do with them. And they get to the speech control panel and David Pogue, he describes it as extremely cool for at least 15 minutes because <laughs> you could play with all these different voices and you could change the rate of speech uh, and all of these different things in there. And there were these goofy voices, like cellos, which played a little classical music tune and and uh, kind of hummed along to it. And then there were also these like alien voices, like Zarvox. That looks like a peaceful planet. And Trinoids. We cannot communicate with these carbonates. And so I thought, oh man, how are we going to get these? And then I went and looked in the speech control panel in OS X, in El Capitan, and I looked at it, and you go in there, and there are your default options, and then there's a, a little menu option that says Customize. And if you click on that, the whole world is opened up to you, because it turns out that all of those Macintosh 3 voices are still there. They're categorized under English, United States, novelty. <laughs> yep. And I think that's totally appropriate. Yeah. And so, yeah, you can actually go and play with these now. You know, you just open up a text edit window and type in whatever you like and have it play. I remember one of the other things that you could do with these is, you know, the easiest way to get them to to play whatever phrase you wanted was just open up simple text in classic Mac, text edit today, and then say, start speaking. I think in simple text, the keyboard command was command J. I think so. Yeah. I tried that now and it like did search again or something. <laughs> it's, it's changed in OS 10, but it was very easy to get custom phrases. I mean, that was the whole point was this text to speech. You could throw any text at it that you wanted from any source. But one of the things I remember doing that you could also do in the classic Mac was it, you could go and open up those, uh, you, you could find the files that contained the speech synthesis information 
And you could open them up in ResEdit, because of course you could. And there was a, I think it was a hex resource in there that had the text of what they said in the little demo in the control panel, so you could change it there as well. So that that's how you get more than 15 minutes of entertainment out of the speech control panel. <laughs> Although, uh, taking all of that and uh, tying it together, I think you got uh, like 30 seconds of fun before it hit annoying if you were a teacher or an administrator of a computer lab full of Macintoshes. And uh, kids like Ed or myself knew this and could like run around and get every Mac in the lab to say something in a goofy voice uh, using text-to-speech because I definitely remember doing that. That probably got old after 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. And if you wanted to be really devious and the the teacher had never encountered text-to-speech on their computer before, you could do something like get like paragraphs and paragraphs of text into a text edit document or a simple text document, hit uh, start speaking and then hide simple text. And they'd just be like, where is it coming from? Kill it. Kill it with fire. <laughs> Unplug. So that was Macintalk. Again, the text-to-speech component of Plain Talk. And the this last major release we're talking about, Macintalk 3, came out in the mid-90s, maybe 94, 95. And alongside each regular release of Macintalk 1, 2, and 3, there was also Macintalk Pro, and the major difference between the regular and the the pro, uh, which we'll we'll put in a link to in the show notes, goes back to what Ed was talking about at the start of the show, whether the components of speech were made from those formants, or which is the case of the regular Macintalk, or in the case of the pro, it was what they called concatenative. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> you did say that correctly. And yeah, the difference with that kind of speech synthesis is that what they do is they try to basically they try to basically record the whole dictionary or at least record you know all of the syllables or you know whatever chunks of language they can think of that will be used and then fall back i suppose to formants for for something that's totally novel like a proper name or er <laughs> <laughs> but um the thing is that you would think that having actual human recorded speech would sound more natural, but it's definitely an uncanny valley situation where the coming up from the formants is the hard problem. And if you don't have a whole lot of resources to throw at it or a lot of time or you do it poorly, you get robot voice. But just as with physical robots, the uncanny valley problem, we're totally fine with physical robots. They're, they're, you look at it and you go, it's made out of metal and plastic, and I'm happy to interact with this metal and plastic robot. But if you get something that's starting to look human but isn't quite right for some reason, that's what concatenative speech production sounds like. It sounds like something is going wrong in the speech process because when we talk as humans, it's very smooth. And when you do formant synthesis... You can smooth it out using various computational techniques, but here you're just chopping things up and putting, you know, it's like, it's like magnetic poetry for speech. If you're one of those people who like, you know, you see magnetic poetry on, on the fridge and you're like, it's not lined up right. You know, and you try to get it right. And even if you get the magnets exactly touching in line, it's, it doesn't look good like words would be on a printed page. And so this doesn't sound good like hearing authentic speech. I can't remember if I ever had a machine that could switch between the two or even two machines with the different ones side by side. So I don't remember like which one I had or which one I, and what each version sounded like. And I think the pro was an AV feature. So it might've been on some of the power max, especially because uh, at least a few years into the power Mac cycle, they stopped making as robust of an AV, not AV decision. So again, that was Macintalk, which carried us through text-to-speech in the classic Mac. And when we got to OS X, it kind of got uh, washed over and it was now just branded as text-to-speech. One of the main kind of normal female voices from the classic Mac days was Victoria. And in 10.3 Panther, we got our first like high-quality text-to-speech voice, a modification of Victoria named Vicky. 
But as Ed has <laughs> noted in our show notes, even Vicky, which was an on-purpose, like high-quality voice, was still very robotic by our current standards. Yeah, I listened to that and thought, oh, no, not at all. Yeah, I think Vicky is still in uh, OS ten. Vicky and Victoria are right next to each other. And uh, we'll get to voiceover as it, it, it exists on iOS a little bit later in this episode, but in 10.4 Tiger, the text-to-speech component of plain talk and more general speech recognition in text-to-speech was also rebranded voiceover. And then finally, we got the male equivalent of Vicky, the high-quality male voice, Alex, in OS 10.5 Leopard. And uh, <laughs> we both, Ed and I, in researching for this episode, somehow triggered the, like, get the real, real high-quality Alex uh, system voice, which is close to a gigabyte download, if not actually that, uh, from your system preferences control panel. So just if you're on the lookout to get the super high quality Alex voice on your system for yourself, that is a download that you will have to wait for because you can't cancel it. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, though, it's probably worth it. It's a, it's one of the best text-to-speech voices that I've heard. And it's kind of disappointing that there's only the, you know, the male offering is so, so much better than the allegedly high quality female voice in in OS 10 and we will get to Siri in the towards the end of the show but we we're also saying that man the the Alex voice is superior to Siri in many ways it would be almost nice if you could just choose that as the voice on on iOS i would i would even i would even sacrifice a gigabyte of of space on my iPhone uh because i don't have a 16 gigabyte iPhone <laughs> Yeah, I think um, Alex can be the accessibility uh, voice for things like voiceover on the iPhones. And I think that uh, popular apps like Instapaper or Pocket or even maybe Safari Reading List, when they do like the text-to-speech function of like long blocks of text, will try to use Alex. And in that way, you kind of got like a free audiobook. And you can see a general trend here as text-to-speech is advancing and its role is changing in the operating system. And I think that text-to-speech is seen much more as an accessibility feature today. Whereas probably that wasn't the case in the early days of Macintosh, because there was really no way that it was robust enough to be an accessibility feature. That it, at best you could select a block of text and, and speak it, and that might be useful as a productivity feature, and we'll get into even more productivity with the voice recognition in just a second. But that transition from productivity to accessibility is, I think, an important one. It also means that if you're looking for some of these features that have been around for a long time and you got used to them being in their own place in speech control panel or speech preference pane, you might have to go digging for some of them now because they've been switched to being accessibility features, which in many cases has made them just as powerful as they were before, sometimes even more so in an effort to make that a really useful feature and not just a novelty feature for playing, uh, for playing silly underwater voices. Let's move on now to the other component of plain talk, which is uh, speech recognition and listening to spoken commands or dictation. And in order for that to happen, you've got to have some kind of microphone so there are actually two revisions of an external microphone that was branded as the plain talk microphone that was like the beige snow white design language uh, shipped in the, in the 90s with some Apple machines. The first revision shipped with like the LC and early Performa class of machines. And I never had one of these. It was a, it was a circular shape and it had a little cradle to sit that would like the cradle would be uh, like taped to the side of your monitor and you could uh, you could like leave it in the cradle and kind of speak at it. And uh, the, like the actual microphone part was kind of in the, the top of it. If, uh, if you're thinking of like a circle rather than like the front facing edge, if you were holding a microphone, a traditional microphone. And so I think that this uh, I remember hearing that like people who had this would often get pretty poor recordings because the, the actual part of it that was listening 
wasn't exactly where you would think it would be. Well, that that's a problem that's persisted all the way to the iPhone. And see, seeing people walking around talking into parts of their phones that don't have any microphones. People using it like a walkie-talkie. Yeah. <laughs> but then there was a second revision of the Plain Talk microphone. And I think I, I know that there, there were like four or five of these floating around in my house. I don't even know where they came from. <laughs> um, but we, we seem to have plenty of these. And these, instead of being a circular shape, they were kind of a rounded triangle shape and had kind of more obvious speaker or, or not a speaker, but a microphone grill that indicated where you should be talking. And instead of having that little extra docking component to try to put it in a convenient place on your Mac, it actually had a little lip on the bottom front of the microphone. So you could run the wire up the back of your monitor so that you didn't have to see un any unsightly wires and then just kind of hook it on the top of your monitor. Kind of imagine where like the eyesight camera is on modern Macs. And then you could talk into your microphone from a comfortable distance. And I think they also came with like a pretty long cord. It was like an eight or 10 foot cord. So that if you did want to like pick up the microphone and move it closer to the sound source of what you were trying to record, you could do that. At the end of that cord was also a proprietary uh, a proprietary jack. So it looks like an ordinary line-in or headphone jack, except it was skinnier and much longer. And so there were specific dedicated microphone ports on Macs at that time, and you could pretty much only use these plain talk microphones with the Mac. I do remember using them for, for all kinds of things, though. Obviously, one of the things that, that you could do was you could add, you could record a sound, save it as a System 7 sound, and then that could be a custom alert tone for your operating system. And uh, the room that we had our family computer in, we had the computer, it was kind of tucked into one corner, and on the opposite wall uh, was a little TV that I had uh, my video game systems hooked up to, like Super Nintendo and 64. And so I would... I would record sound effects from video games and then use them as the alert sounds for the system. And uh, some of them my parents really liked. And some of them, they were very shocked when <laughs> I was like, what, what, what is this? Where did this come from? Don't ever make the computer make that noise. And then, of course, the software side of speech recognition is is exactly that listening to and being able to recognize spoken commands or just in general spoken language and in the classic mac os this part of the software was called speakable items it was still a component of plain talk uh but it i it the phrase speakable items means uh something very significant to me because of the the specific commands that it came pre-installed with. Yeah, and I think that we've had kind of a long, slow burn to get all the history up to here. But this is the thing that seems pretty relevant right now as we're recording this. We're recording in May of 2016, and people are getting excited for WWDC next month. And big speculation, at least for the Mac operating system side, is are we going to get Siri on the Mac? Are you finally going to be able to say Ahoy Computer and have it do things for you? And then we, th we think to ourselves and say, wait a, wait a minute, I, I remember doing that in System 7. It wasn't good, but it was a feature that was there, and it turns out that it's still there in some form. Again, moved, from, uh, moved over into accessibility realm, but it's still there today. Obviously, it's not Siri, but... There are these things that are called speakable items. It's a discrete list, but there's quite a bit that you can do with it. Speakable items was codenamed Casper and released in as part of Plain Talk in 1993. I guess it's the friendly ghost that lives in your computer. <laughs> I guess so. But again, like Ed said, we're here in 2016 looking forward to being able to say things like, hey, computer, what day is it? But in 1993, you could literally do that. One of the speakable items was, what day is it? What time is it? Things like that. And uh, because the, the it was forward-thinking enough to think, like, it's always there's a mode where it's always listening, but you don't want it to interpret everything as a command. So you can give it a little, like, okay, start listening to command now phrases. 
uh, Amazon has its own, Siri has its own, and you could freely define your own for the computer as part of speakable items. To put this in a little bit of context, um, I've I've recently purchased an Amazon Echo whose sole dedicated purpose is to sit and listen to when I say the magic word and then start start listening further and doing commands. Uh, and that was that was possible back on these older Macs, classic Macs. But this is the level of what you were getting into, and this is from the Macintosh Bible. So when you enabled that mode that was the always listening mode, it was really always listening, not doing sort of smart passive listening like like the Ahoy Telephone feature on iOS or like the Amazon Echo is. And it says, when it's turned on, voice recognition consumes two megabytes of memory, which some people find is too much to allow them to run other applications on 68040-based AV Max with only eight megs of RAM. A quarter of your, your memory dedicated to actively listening. Apple pundits are always happy to pounce on Apple for saying, oh, the iPhone, it's underpowered. They don't give it enough RAM. Well, I'm sure it's not using a quarter of its RAM just to keep that feature on. It's probably it's probably much closer to two megabytes than it is to a quarter of its of its total RAM. And the cool part about speakable items is that it it, it came with this list that Ed mentioned of like a, a discrete list of commands that it was programmed to understand and then execute. But further on in the history of speakable items, it became a discrete folder called speakable items in your Apple menu items folder that you could write your own Apple scripts and drop into, and the name of the Apple script uh, file would be the command that it would listen for. So you could you could teach your Mac to uh, you could teach your Mac new tricks and uh, have it listen for you to say them out loud. Just like any good customizable feature in the classic Mac, eventually it became a system folder subfolder, and you could put anything in there, including I believe aliases to documents and aliases to applications. So you could you could. Uh, you know, if you're working on a chemistry project, you know, put alias to the chemistry project folder in there and say, uh, hey, computer, open chemistry project and finder window will open. And uh, you had to cheat a little bit, as I discovered when I was looking through this today. Like, I think by default, one of those aliases was the speech control panel, but it wasn't an alias that just said speech. The alias was actually named open the speech control panel because that's the command it's listening for. So you'd have to get a little creative and work within that 31-character file limit. Yeah, you're going to have to have really, really pithy commands in, in the classic Mac OS. And again, this was, this was something that was available on the classic Mac, and actually this command nature of speakable items continued through into OS X, actually all the way up to 10.8. And I'm not saying that it was removed then, I'm saying that it was, it was commands only up until then. And uh, once we got to 10.8 Mountain Lion, the speech recognition component of the system software started to allow for full dictation, which is kind of like the Sherlocking, if you care enough about it, of like very expensive pieces of software, like dragging dictation or, or uh, similar pieces of software. And in true Sherlocking fashion, it's good enough for most people, but definitely not up to the caliber of those dedicated software packages. It did not kill them in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a great accessibility feature. I mean, it was about a year ago that I fell off my bike and had my wrist in a brace for a few days where I could really barely type. And I had to like, I had to like write a report at work. And so I just like booked a small conference room and went and took my took my ear pods and just turned on dictation and started talking into my computer and it was like 90% good like i was able to do my work that day where otherwise i probably wouldn't have been able to and a fun quirk about the first iteration of dictation in the system software is that you had to be online because apple was sending the recordings of your your speech to their servers and interpreting it and sending it back to you but with 10.9 uh, Mavericks, the ability was added to take dictation fully offline and have it be done locally on your computer. Another one of those big downloads, but that one is a little bit more explicit about when it's going to happen and are you sure, et cetera, et cetera. And that story that I just told about when I needed it on my work computer, 
I, I usually installed it on, on my home computers just because and I hadn't installed it on my work computer. And so I hit function function to enable it. And it says, uh, you sure that you want to do that? Send it up to the cloud. I'm like, oh no. Good thing is on a university network, 1.6 gigabytes is not too long of a wait. You know, go get a cup of coffee and you're done. And that's what brings us to today where kind of all the bits and pieces of text-to-speech and speech recognition on the Mac uh, exist. And we're, we're kind of eagerly waiting to see how it's packaged and maybe marketed and presented if it's renamed Siri on the desktop. And before we move away from the kind of classic Mac, Mac and talk and speakable items, I want to give a shout out to my number one favorite speakable item, which is tell me a joke. And uh, I went in looking for, looking to see if this was an Apple script that I could poke through and see like all the various joke permutations, but alas, it was compiled into an app and I couldn't. Uh, but if you ever want to hear some like real, real corny knock knock jokes, and you have a, a Macintosh running system software of a particular vintage, because I couldn't find this command in El Capitan, but it was definitely in uh, Mac OS 9 that I'm running on my classic machine. Just turn on speech recognition and <laughs> ask your computer to tell you a joke. We should also mention that. Uh, when when you turn that feature on, you get a little window with a de- with a delightful com- delightful cartoon avatar of your choosing, who's the the person who's going to tell you the joke. That's right. This is kind of Apple's version of like the Clippy uh, assistants, where you could cycle through you could kind of cycle through a bunch of those in Microsoft Office. It wasn't just the paper clip. There was like the bouncing red ball, uh, a bunch of other ones. And there are a bunch of fun little animated characters that you can choose from in speakable items as well, at least in the classic Mac OS. I think in OS X, you were stuck with an Aqua E widget that showed the levels of your uh, incoming audio and a little microphone to let you know it was listening. Yeah, no, not as much personality there. And we'll put a screenshot that you took, Brian, in, in the show notes. You also you also went to the trouble of customizing it. You could You could customize what the the wake word was for it listening to you. And by default, it was just computer, (laughs) but you, you did the smart thing, uh, for 2016, which was you went in and you named your computer itself. Siri. (laughs) It's a very, it makes for a very good tech demo. Uh, in addition to just being like a fun source of entertainment, because it shows that it is adaptively listening because, uh, you say computer, tell me a joke. It goes knock, knock. And you have to say who's there before it proceeds and then it goes through like its tree of jokes and it might give you a uh, orange. And so it, at that point, it has to know that it's listening for orange who not like any standard word, but a word like the word that it just said, plus the word who, which is pretty smart. Yeah. And it would, it would, it would like chastise you if you didn't play along. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and by the way, the, the punchline of orange who is orange. You glad you bought a Macintosh. Oh no. <laughs> On that note, let's move along to iOS. (laughs) So several of these features also came to iOS, and they were continuing that trend of mostly being accessibility features. That was where the voice control first came in in iOS, and also where text-to-speech really shone on early versions of iOS and early iPhone hardware. And so the voiceover functionality that we talked about earlier came to iOS with the iPhone 3GS, which was the first hardware that could support it. And voiceover is really critical accessibility technology, especially because the iPhone and iOS devices rely on touchscreens. And so if you have limited or no visual ability, how are you possibly going to interact with that device? It has three buttons that don't actually do the things that are the bulk of what you want to do with the device. Yeah. It's unlike using a keyboard um, in that sense. So you really need a more robust way to interact with with the interface elements on the screen using just voice and being able to hear what's on the screen. And so that's what voiceover does. And it provides that type of of interface, and it's open to third-party developers. And I've heard... 
I've never developed iOS for iOS myself. Brian, you may know a little bit more about this, but I've heard that at least for checking out the basics of voiceover, it's something that developers can and should be able to learn to just make sure that they're not making, even if they don't have the world's greatest voiceover support, make sure that they're not totally leaving people out or making common mistakes with it. Right. Like if you follow best practices just in developing for in general and like put labels for certain things, those become like the the things that the the voiceover function will speak. It's like good web development too. Like put alt text on your images so that if if someone has to use text to speech, they don't come across an image and it's just image. Good luck guessing what it is. Yeah. So this functionality came to the iPhone. And I knew that you could use it to access various controls on on the screen without looking at the screen. And so I've never really used voiceover because I'm fortunate that I don't need it for the accessibility reasons. Although the one time that I tried to use it, there is a little bit of a learning curve, and I did not know what I was getting into. <laughs> and it was, uh, I think it was a year or so ago, it was the dead of winter, and I was walking to work, and I wanted to, like, I was listening to a podcast, and I wanted to change some setting or hit some button that I knew would be on the screen of my podcast app, but it was, like, minus 15 degrees outside, and I did not want to take off a glove to get out the phone and do this. I'm like, I know. I've got my earbuds with the microphone. I'll be tricky. I'll turn on voiceover and get to that button and press it and everything will be fine. And I was like halfway to work. I had like 10 minutes left to walk. <laughs> and I started this and I just got into this. I, I got into this zone where I had no idea where I was in the interface. But the voice was saying things to me that were clearly commands Things that were on the screen, also commands for voiceover. I had no idea what was going on. Somehow I got it into some sort of recursive loop where it just kept reciting in order all of the things that were on the screen. I said, okay, like there's no way I'm getting my podcast back. That was a terrible idea. I'll just I'll just unplug the the headphones and that'll be the end of it. Well, but no, it's an accessibility feature. It plays out the speaker. <laughs> So I just had to like turn the volume all the way down. I got all the way to the office. I pulled the phone out and I turned the volume back up and it's still just talking through all the voiceover things because maybe I was in an app that really didn't support it well. And it was just like listing through all the controls on the screen. Skip 30 seconds, skip 15 seconds, next track, this, blah, blah. <laughs> and I had to go into settings, get it to turn off. Um, I did not have a good experience with it, but I know that People who need it generally do have a good experience with it. I was just being a dumb user. <laughs> it's a learning curve, I think, especially for someone who's been using uh, iOS devices since they were available. And like all of the, the muscle memory for touching and swiping is uh, second nature. It's, it's almost instinctual to, like, to see a button and tap on it. But you kind of have to like double tap or triple tap to replace single tap uh, actions. That was the other thing was that I expected that it would behave a little bit more like Siri, where once I had it on, I could say, hit the such and such button. Or like speakable items, you know, okay, the, the speakable items should be the things, the controls that are on the screen. And that's not how it works at all. It does work through these series, these certain tap and, and multiple tap and swipe gestures. Um, and it takes over the rest of the interface so that those ordinary taps and swipes don't work, um, which is a challenge when then you need to turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a very different paradigm of interaction. And it's something that goes well beyond just plain text-to-speech, but it relies on that at its core. One of the things that has been a big improvement to voiceover was that... Uh, it seems a little bit late, but it makes sense that, again, working with hardware constraints of the device, the Alex voice came to iOS voiceover in iOS 8, so only a couple years ago. But that has to be a big improvement over, I don't know exactly which voice they were using prior, but you have to imagine that it was on par with those Macintosh 3 voices, as opposed to the 
the rich, natural, modern text-to-speech that that was available on OS X. And the other side of uh, voice interface on iOS is voice control, where uh, the, the device is listening for spoken commands from the user. Before Siri arrived, we had iOS voice control, which really only existed on the iPhone 3GS and the iPhone 4. Uh, so it arrived with the 3GS and iPhone OS 3.0, and of course was replaced by Siri when the iPhone 4S came out with iOS 5. And that meant that I had it for extra long because I was on the 4 cycle, the initial release, not the S cycle. And so I had a year of everybody else is having fun with Siri. Same. And I actually didn't use voice control until Siri came out because it was like, oh, you have a version of this. It's just not the fun version that can do a lot more things. Uh, But I (laughs) stood fast by it because Siri required an internet connection and voice control didn't, probably because the set of commands it recognized was so limited that it could process the speech and like figure out which command those audio waveforms (laughs) map to locally on the device. Uh, but the mechanics of it were just the same. You could hold down the home button or uh, until iOS 4 came out, which made the double tap of the home button, uh, the multitasking bar, you could assign double tap to activate voice control as well. And it was like this blue interface that filled the screen and showed a waveform and had the verb part of your command, like different verbs floating around in this blue waveform. Yeah, these are the things that you can say and they're kind of lazily floating by down the river. Yeah, and I think there were two major components that voice control worked with. One was the phone aspect of your iPhone where you could say, call this number or dial this number. And it was pretty smart. Like if you said, call mom, and mom had a number stored as home or a number stored as mobile, uh, it would speak back to you, like call home or call mobile. And it was a little bit of that, like remembering context where you could just say mobile and then it would do like calling mom mobile. Yeah, I feel that this is like the level of voice recognition that's still present in like in the in-dash displays in cars that are being sold today, which is more of a slag on them than on voice control, which was you know, six, seven iterations of iOS ago and that many years ago as well. And the other main area that voice control would work with was music, the what was then called the iPod app. So you could say, play songs by this artist, or play this album, or play this playlist, or curiously, uh, not a specific song. Probably just because of the number of potential matches that it would have to go against, right? Maybe you have 10,000 songs, but only a couple hundred artists, or only a couple hundred contacts. I never had good luck with iOS voice control. I think that it needed like really clean voice input, and the one time that I would need to use my phone hands-free was when I was driving in the car. And I would, there were times that, especially this was when I had, you know, my first, first iPhones and I was coming over from always using an iPod in the car for music playback. And that had a lot more tactile feedback. Like I could feel the click wheel and I could, I could scroll, 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 check where I am scroll a little bit more, you know, very very quickly and without taking my eyes off the road very much, get to what music I wanted to play. Whereas I wasn't adept yet at the touch interface of the iPhone. And I thought that it seemed, you know, it seemed a lot more dangerous, a lot more having to look at the screen just to get the next song up. So I'm like, great, voice control is going to fix this for me. I'm going to be able to use this in the car. But when you're driving in the car at 70 miles an hour, there's road noise. And I think that that really threw it off for me. And so you mentioned the two features that it had, and that was the danger (laughs) of voice control for me, was that the only two commands that it accepted began with call and play. And despite the fact that those words sound quite different, they are each just one syllable, and it would frequently just mix them up. And you you would say something to the phone, and you would say, play such and such an artist. And it would go, calling so-and-so, you know, like someone that you haven't talked to in four years, who's you know, some college friend of yours who just happens to be in your contact book. Um, or you would say, 
call mom and it would be like now playing muse yeah. no <laughs> like that's the opposite of what i needed in that moment and again where i was trying to be less distracted in that environment it was not particularly helpful to me i had almost the exact opposite experience i loved i loved uh the voice control for music in my car specifically. Maybe you just, maybe you had acquired a car or you enunciate better than I do. I don't know. I actually think it was because I I had a routine where I I would like get in my car, plug my iPhone into the like built-in 30 pin cable that was in the like center armrest between the driver and the passenger seat and uh, hold down the button. Like as I'm starting the car, maybe the car isn't even on yet. And I would just say play playlist driving which was like most of my music, but like anything below two stars, you know, filtered out. And that was it. That was like, and it worked every time the little like pre Siri female synthesized voice be like playing playlist driving. And, and it would work every time. And so like, I only had one command that I used it with, but uh, I had like a very high success rate with it. And as I said, I was like, I'm a big fan of this voice control thing. Cause every time I need it, it works for me. And I don't even have to have a good uh, cell connection to like send something to Siri, have her interpret it and send it back. But then I realized like in reality, uh, what are, when are the times where you like, you don't have a cell connection? Uh, the, all the phone voice commands probably are useless because you have no connection. And if you're in a place that's like, like my main, a scenario when I don't have an internet connection is on an airplane. There's no way I'm going to talk to my phone on the airplane surrounded by like a million people. That's super awkward. <laughs> yeah. So my that argument carried no weight. But in those early days of Siri, I mean, it didn't really depend on your network connectivity. You could have perfect, glorious, high-speed Wi-Fi at home and say something to Siri and just because the way that they were handling traffic and the server overload, it would just go, I... I, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. So for that that overlap period where where it was transitioning between those two technologies, still might have proved useful. Yeah, I've certainly felt high and mighty about it. So that more or less brings us up to the present, or at least the Siri era. Mm-hmm. And we've had Siri on the iPhone for a while now. And, you know, we're not a news and rumors show, uh, but it's interesting to at least speculate a little bit uh, you know, to extrapolate from this history what we might get with Siri in the future. And it's hard for me to say exactly what kind of features I would want for Siri on the Mac. Um, although I would imagine that it would be something like, you know, in on, on iOS, we've seen uh, Spotlight Search renamed Siri Search. And so I would I would guess the same thing would happen on the Mac. And basically anything you can search for there would be also in the purview of Siri. But with Siri on the phone as well, you know, we mentioned that there, there are ways that uh, just in the speech technology itself, this could be improved. And yes, the, the way that Siri sounds is a bit of a brand, but it's going to, it, I think it's already starting to sound dated. And I, I, I don't think that Apple can wait out the period of perhaps multiple years where it sounds dated before it sounds retro again. Um, so it would be great to see some improved, uh, just improved speech technology on iOS and and all of Apple's platforms. Yeah, I was just going to say this maybe is a little bit of follow out to your other podcast, but uh, you've chronicled the the functionality of Siri in tvOS as well on Pico Mac. Yeah, and that's another one of the things with with Siri. Big question mark for Siri coming to the Mac is. How fragmented does Siri get? Are there core commands that you can trust Siri is always going to be able to do? So yeah, on that episode, I can, I can link that up in the show notes. I tried to do like a unit conversion on the TV because it was right there. And it came to me and my phone was in my pocket and the remote was sitting next to me. I thought this is the easy thing to do. Tell me how how fast that is in miles per hour instead of kilometers per hour. And just the worst thing happens is it says, I can't do that for you. So, you know, there are still improvements to be made there and and just sort of core features. And of course, Apple is not the only company working in speech recognition and voice interfaces. There's lots of robust competition. And that's one of the things that actually 
is really different about looking at this technology now as opposed to, say, 20 years ago on the classic Mac. This text-to-speech stuff, especially coming bundled with the operating system, that was just not really happening on any other platform. It was a defining feature of the Macintosh. But now there are so many other options. Also, that I've been kind of chronicling over on Pico Mac is we just got the Amazon Echo, and that has uh, that has the Ahoy Cylinder uh, <laughs> assistant inside of it. That one's even worse, man, because um, you know with Siri you have to say the phrase combined, but with the Echo it's just one word, and it's like you can't talk about her behind her back. <laughs> She's always listening unless you push the button that deactivates it. <laughs> so we've definitely set it off by accident a few times. Um, but you know, people have said it elsewhere. This is just repeating, uh, but I'm I'm verifying it from firsthand experience. It's fast. It's super fast. And one of the things that I love about it is that I love its lack of personality <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to Siri. When you say turn the lights off, the voice feedback that you get is, Okay. None of like the set a timer or set a timer is my absolute least favorite. Yeah, you set a timer and it says timer for 8 minutes starting now. Perfect. That was exactly what I needed to hear. And the voice is really smooth. So, I would say, well, this is ironic. Uh the Alexa voice is extremely comparable to the Alex voice. Oh, on- interesting. <laughs> I don't think there's any relationship there. I mean, uh, I mean, the name uh, for Amazon goes way back. Uh, remember the uh, the Alexa toolbar? Oh my gosh, yeah. Right, and they had that whole. It, it was a browser toolbar that you were supposed to install, and it was like Nielsen ratings for the internet, and they they extracted information from that toolbar to see what the most popular websites on the web were. And I think they still publish Alexa rankings. I, don't, I think they. They use a different technology to gather it now because everyone sees browser toolbar and immediately thinks malware. But that's a that's a old standing, you know, long standing name for Amazon. So that's where they got it. I don't think there's any connection with Alex. But in terms of the the fluidity of the speech and it making good guesses at unfamiliar words, proper nouns, you know, you're playing music and and you ask it about what's playing and it does a relatively good job of of doing that although it was playing one two three four by feist the other day and i knew that song um but was just kind of testing it and said uh what's this song and it said this is 1234 by feist (laughs) so close (laughs) so close and yet so far (laughs) but yeah i think that there's lots of pressure um from other companies for apple to keep their speech and voice features on the cutting edge. And Siri got a good head start, but maybe maybe lagging in the race. We may be finding that people want it on different types of devices, like the Echo, as opposed to on, on their phones as much. And this one is kind of a throwaway in the realm of big tech companies going into speech recognition. But Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook does these like year, basically like New Year's resolutions, but like by the end of the year, I want to have done this or accomplished this. And in past years, it's been like learn Mandarin or uh, or dress up for work every day to combat the kind of schlubby Silicon Valley image. And his for 2016 is to build a speech recognition AI for his home. Uh, he even called it like kind of like Jarvis from Iron Man. And uh, as we're seeing right now with Facebook Live kind of coming from nowhere to overtake Periscope and certainly Meerkat and lots of other live streaming things. Like when Mark Zuckerberg decides the company should pursue a direction, the company pursues a direction. And depending on, you know, like what kind of success he has with his personal project, it'll be interesting to see where Facebook decides uh, speech recognition and, uh, and spoken commands have a place in their particular reaches into the world. Yeah, I think that that's it, it can only be a positive thing to have more big players and we've even seen medium-sized players be able to do really remarkable things with with this technology now because it's it's not something that's only within the reach of the the secretive Macintosh team at Apple before they they launch their product, right? Yeah. Um and one of the examples is uh the Hound app 
from SoundHound, which is, you know, they're a medium-sized company. They're not Facebook. They're not Apple. They're not Google, who's also doing this kind of stuff. Um, and so having that where everyone is trying to create just generally better experiences, smoother, more robust, more accurate experiences, but then also competing on features, uh, I think that we'll see see a lot of improvement. And it'll be interesting to see what directions Apple goes, whether it's the the really heavily customizable route of the classic Mac and speakable items, or whether it's a, a more modern Apple, this is, this is what you get and it's a package deal. And I think that that's a, that's a good place to leave it. We're kind of looking forward, but knowing that we've had such great potential and such great capability for really a long time. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we unfortunately don't have any kind of voicemail set up to get, uh, uh, vocal feedback, but you can contact us through a form on our website, simplebeep.com. You can also browse our back catalog of episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. And you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And that is nearly the end of the episode, but what you see might not be what you think it is. The light you see at the end of the tunnel is the headlamp of a fast approaching train.